0: read. Um, we're. Uh, this is the first in a series of things where we're trying to do a video series about uh, my new book. And uh, uh, you were very helpful in sort of helping me think about a lot of the things in the book. And actually, you were an inspiration for a lot of the stuff in the book and an early reader. So thanks for all your help. And uh, I thought maybe we could talk about some of the topics in the book if that's okay. Yep, that's
1: awesome. And uh, you know, one of the reasons I've been a big fan has been uh, quite simply, that the the universe that your book is describing is exactly this universe of we're living in a more and more networked age. Things are accelerating. Change is happening. And how do we navigate that? Everything from individuals to organizations to governments and societies. And how do we steer more to utopias uh, and away from dystopias? Uh, because one of the, the kinds of attributes that come out of the networked age are speed, acceleration, but also a general lack of predictability, uh things like for example like, you know, uh what it was called chaos theory, which is uh, you know, little changes can have um, uh, evolving effects in complex systems, which can lead anything from, you know, the so-called butterfly effect, which is, you know, a butterfly flaps its wings and over there there's a storm, uh to uh, you know kind of um you know all of the kind of uh, disruption and other kinds of things that was part of the modern age, and you know when I wrote about this, it was just the startup review, which is the individual and their career and what are the ways that they can try to navigate this networked age, to to have kind of a productive economic life, have some 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 control over their um, kind of economic resources and destiny, and and what's the thing that you can do, and and you're writing much more on the Kind of the science impacts the 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 uh, society uh, level, and so uh, and this is obviously where the media lab plays in. And so you distilled a set of principles, which is the architecture of the book, mm-hmm. in order to say here's how to think about this this modern life. And so the first question I think is important to kick off of is you and I are studies of the students of this uh, participants in this. And we are fundamentally optimistic mm-hmm. about kind of this world and where it's going and how we can shape towards utopia and dystopia. But many people, when they encounter principles like uh, kind of risk over safety, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, they go, huh? I, I prefer safety, please. <laughs> right? Is this new universe safe? Is this new universe something that I should look forward to or I should be fearful of? And so I think the first kind of thing is what leads you to the optimism. What leads mm-hmm. you to what? What kind of things would you share with you know people to say this is actually in fact why I'm optimistic about this, and mm-hmm. why you should actually in fact, even though it's risk over safety, mm-hmm. you think mm-hmm. that ultimately you will be safe mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. in the future.
0: Yeah, and 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 I think you know part of it is is definitely a. Uh, values, experience, and the point of view. I mean, I think both of us have gone through life taking risks, failing. I mean, it's kind of a cliche, the whole, um, you know, f- fail fast and fail, uh, you know, forward and stuff like that. But but actually, in fact, you know, I grew up going through a series of failures and realizing that actually I, I learned. I learned facts instead of theory. Um, and I came out stronger each time. And when you do that, Earlier in your career, like when you're 18 or even younger, um, you start to realize that that um, taking risks are is a fast way to learn stuff compared to sort of theorizing and wondering whether it's true or not. And I think that both of us have sort of gone through life uh, doing that. And I think if you've come from a position where you've studied all your life and then you've become an adult and then you're just repeating the same day every day like ground, Groundhog Day for decades, you know risk and change is kind of a, a scary thing and i think that traditionally you know even after the industrial revolution most of life was about becoming a professional and then repeating you know, and 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 I think it, it that that worldview of optimism in the face of change comes from having grown up. You know, and I I moved every year for about twenty years as a, as a kid, and and that I became kind of familiar with change. And I think that that's, you know, but we are kind of anomalous, and I think a lot of people who are in our in our world are kind of strange. But I think our kids are growing up in a world where they're constantly seeing change every year, everything turning upside down. So they're becoming familiar with it. So I think part of it's going to be a generational thing. And then, I mean, I'd love for you to sort of, I mean, you you actually were the um, sort of inspiration be- behind this risk over safety slide, which is, uh, I remember you scribbled this on a paper napkin, I wrote a blog post about it later, where you drew a curve, where um, venture capitalists and, and the downside, do what, can you explain that?
1: Well, the 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 quick thing was, and this is part of actually accelerating network future and everything else is part of the venture capital model is that you have a fixed downside. It's basically one x of your capital. You invest five million, ten million dollars. The most you can lose is five or ten million dollars. But if you have something that's working, and you in w- across a portfolio, you get at least one or two of those with with kind of an accelerating upside. You have a quote-unquote uncapped that's not quite true it's just so large that it looks uncapped uh return to what you're doing and that's the game that you're playing as a venture capitalist in the network age because and this is what what modern in silicon valley has been described as unicorns or dragons and that's why you're looking for those because what you're doing is a set of bets where you have a one x downside where if you're and obviously if you only do one x downside, and they're all downside. Then that's a then then that then you've lost that game. But uh, if you get enough of the the right characteristics of the things that can actually get to superlinear growth, then uh, you essentially are a massive winner. And that's part of the reason why uh, you know folks within um, the kind of knowledgeable set within Silicon Valley. When evaluating the businesses, are looking for these businesses that essentially have a the, this kind of accelerating, uncapped upside, and it's one of the reasons why uh, everyone in Silicon Valley to some degree talks about network effects. But uh, even though very few of fewer few people realize and, and know what actually network effects are and how they work, because network effects are one of those things that have actually that curve. Now, the way it applies to your principle. On kind of risk over safety, is that you know essentially you cannot get this early like like if it was totally predictable to which of these curves would be superlinear curves, then you know this would be a pretty easy game and 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 all of those positions would be occupied and everything else. But but part of it is is like when you're starting a marketplace like Airbnb um, or a, you know a network like Uber or these kinds of when you when you when you start these things. You actually don't have it predictable that this one will work, that the time is now, that the pieces will come together, uh, and so uh, you you need to to engineer that, and that's why in the early stages of these of uh, companies, most like part of the test is most people are skeptics. Mm-hmm. Uh, so part of you know the other part of this investing thing that I tell people is uh, is as part of being contrarian and right is in in these kinds of things when you when you're trying to create a Business that may grow to be huge. If you don't have a bunch of smart people that think you're a fool at the Series A stage, you're actually, in fact, most likely not going to be in one of those businesses. I mean, you may, by the way, still not be in one of those businesses, but, <laughs> but without that, you're almost certainly not as well.
0: And that's actually, a, it's not directly relevant, but I guess it's some, it's it sort of is. It's it's sort of about um, talking about the edges. But I remember you said something about how. Like, none of these super hits, uh, these unicorns, ever have consensus of his, the investment committee. And, in fact, if everybody agrees on it, it's less likely to be a runaway success, right? Is that true?
1: Yeah. So, we, uh, at Greylock, we actually did a kind of a study of, of kind of which, what the ones, the hits and which ones, uh, you know, what the returns characteristics look like roughly by kind of how the partnership votes. And uh you know um the all of the huge outlier returns essentially had a mixed vote had some people thinking, for example, like one partner on the on the Facebook investment said this is the investment that's gonna ruin the firm <laughs> right uh you know, my partner David Z, when when we're doing Airbnb, said, "Look, everyone has to have a have a have an investment that they fail on. So this can be the one that that you know <laughs> you you have learning, <laughs> right? Um, and uh, and you know by and by the way, like you know, David was the partner that I chose for the LinkedIn board and is totally awesome and 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 actually, in fact, I've learned a ton from. So." But that's what I mean by smart people talking to you. So I, I thought about it, and I went, "Well, it's possible David's right, but there's a certain set of hypotheses that we are we are testing that I have a belief in, and that that makes sense within a kind of a venture uh, portfolio." Mm-hmm. So let me switch to a to a different kind of funny question uh, okay. for you, which, by the way, I ask about myself, uh, given that. You know, wrote The Startup View, wrote The Alliance, working on another book on kind of what the secrets of Silicon Valley are, you know, roughly titled, currently uh, titled Blitzscaling off the Stanford class. Why write a book <laughs> uh, uh, in this modern networked age where you mm-hmm. say it's dynamic and it's knowledge sharing and mm-hmm. it's networks of people communicating
0: with each other and so forth? A book is very old school. Yeah. So why a book? So, so a okay, I thought about this a lot so um and and it and my agent John Brockman was my agent um since I was a teenager basically, so for the last thirty years, I haven't written a book um and uh, um so so a couple of things that was interesting, having written a book now, I can say it um so I had a co author um Jeff Howe, who is a wired uh uh, journalist, and he's really great at going and listening to people, getting their stories, and um, and writing them in a really interesting way. Um, and he's also, um, and then we had Chia Evers, who's an amazing uh, researcher who can go online and source things, and and you know, and 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 we, I, I'm great at sitting around and having kind of, oh, I, th- I think I read somewhere about this study that da da da. And, you know, Chia can chase down the study and um, Jeff can go get the story. And and at least on this book, so first of all, it was a team effort, which was really interesting. So so I was able to sort of think about these principles that I've been cogitating on and I could point at different people. And then we were able to sort of, first of all, grab those stories and lock them in and then realize – and we learned a lot. So, you know, Jeff went and like, he dived into, and this, some of this didn't get into the book, but like the history of the industrial revolution. And we'd sit around talking about, Oh, wow. Did you realize that in the industrial revolution that, that the, it was the artisans that turned around and became the factory owners? And so, 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 so the process of writing the book created a sort of rigorous, uh, necessity to chase down every fact. So, so that that was really interesting. So, I I felt like I learned a lot, and it and also I, I've never really tried to put this much stuff together. Like I've I think in units of blog posts. So I have lots of little stories, and all of my talks, each slide is kind of a brick. But the thing that's interesting about putting together a book is you're sort of forced to put it all together in kind of a universe that sort of makes sense. So, 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 so from a thought process perspective, that was one thing. And then the other part was I realized, you know, I have a little, and this, you know, in the in the wake of this election, I think it's really an interesting point, which is there's a bunch of people who will find books in bookstores, and I think you just froze. Okay, there you are. Up, oh, I'm back. Yep. Um, you know, they'll... network. Uh oh, network failure. Are you still there? Okay. Yeah, there I'm still are. here. Okay. Uh, I was just praising the network age as we were doing this. Uh, <laughs> I know. Um, so <laughs> You know, Silicon Valley to Boston. Because I, I think that's the thing. Is, that's funny because to me, I talk in Silicon Valley and Boston, but I don't reach anybody in between. And if you think about okay. like the original moonshot, you know, you had people in Iowa shooting rockets. And we're talking about optimism, but I feel like right now the middle of America is not very optimistic, right? And so they're not going to read my blog posts. They're not going to see the podcast. They're not going to come hang out at the Churchill Club with us. And so the other thing that I thought that maybe a book might do is to reach an audience um, through bookstores and through networks um, because people talk about books in a way that they don't talk about, like a blog post. So, So I thought that might. Be kind of another thing is is do, does it have different reach? It's, it's also an experiment. So I know you've done a few books. Why do you keep doing them? Can turn it around to you. <laughs> well, uh, I wonder if I'm right to do them. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of the
1: things that you've said are very similar to the things that I've thought. Of, which is um, first is there's a bunch of audiences that you know, for example, talks like this or internet or other kinds of work doesn't reach. Uh, there's questions of when you wrote, work through a book, it actually makes you very serious about your own thinking. You track down, for example, the specific examples. You put them in a very coherent order. Uh, you do research that's associated with it. So there's a, there's a bunch of work that goes uh, in with it. It's also kind of a nice little artifact to give out as gifts and you know that kind of thing as well. And then people can also then uh, can kind of share their own, like they can buy it for each other. They can sit down and read it together. They can refer to it in a kind of coherent way. I'd say the other thing that, oh, and then the last thing that you were also gesturing at, which I also agree with, is experiment. Like, for mm-hmm. example, you could say, um, uh, like, one of the principles you could have written in the book, as you know, is like experiment over theory, like, mm-hmm. like try things, like mm-hmm. many experiments matter more than like, like wait until you have the one master theory and then mm-hmm. do that. And that's a little bit like your practice over theory, right, right, <laughs> right, right, uh, right. actual principle um and so and i think the other thing for me in books is um it's it's also kind of the question of you know what one, one downside to the networked age the things being fast the fast feedback and everything else is we st- we need long processes as well as short processes and short processes with feedback loops think about public markets and how that drives kind of stock prices and that kind of thing These kinds of, uh, these long processes are also need to be part of our life. And I think I hold on to the book as one of the ways of kind of holding on to a long process, Mm -hmm. (laughs) right? Mm -hmm. Where it's kind of like, okay, I put a bunch of time into it, it took months, Mm -hmm. reading it takes a long time People are gonna say well I only watch YouTube videos of five minutes why the heck would I write a book read a book and the mm-hmm. actual answer is for everyone is if you actually want to be adaptive you both want to be moving fast within the network page mm-hmm. uh, learning feedbacks reading blogs lis- listening to audio uh, you know podcasts watching these kind of short videos but you also want to be reading
0: books and thinking about them
1: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: so that's that, that's it but but it we could be wrong yeah and but at the flip side of is i buy a ton of books i mean i don't read them all but i buy them and yes. i at least scan, scan them i mean you you buy books too right and and so i don't know, it'll be interesting what the next generation is like i mean for us it seems like it's definitely a unit of thing um but uh but but it'll be well, but it'll be interesting
1: one thing i've been uh meaning to talk to you about by the way separately and we won't go into it but there is a funny thing here which is i bought a recent uh book that i liked um called lost in translation which is these uh words uh, that are kind of unique in different languages hmm. and apparently one of them is, is apparently a word in japanese which i'm not remembering right now which is for people who buy a whole bunch of books and don't read them <laughs> well, that's, that's, that's yes <laughs> i know the feeling i was like hmm, yes i hope that doesn't describe me <laughs> yeah uh, anyway let, let me go back to another part of your book okay. that um uh, is I think something that uh, is one of the reasons why people should you know kind of uh, run not walk uh, to Amazon or bookstore or whatever mm-hmm. to to get your book. I thought one of the delightful things that you did in your book that I'm uh, toying with and thinking about. Do I do a version of this and 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 what's the right thing? Is you put a P.S. at the end mm-hmm. of each of the mm-hmm. principal chapters and. In addition to the kind of the historical context, the science and what's going on, modern science, whether it's synth bio, you know, anything from from movies to synth bio to Bitcoin and so forth, all of which illustrate the various kinds of points and some of which we might have time in this talk to come back to Mm -hmm. in this this little chat. Uh, But it also made a kind of a personal statement about how you were engaged with each Mm -hmm. of these and Mm -hmm. how it kind of like we're. Where you'd made a prediction, and sometimes where your prediction was wrong, and sometimes it was kind of interesting, and I thought, wow, that's actually in a good theory book. That's very humanizing, and very, and very kind of how do I uh, uh, connect with this, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. you know, whatever level. And so I thought that was, by the way, a a, a super smart uh, stylistic technique and a set of content, and. And then the specific that kind of comes out of that is the very first one in emergence over authority was emergent democracy. Mm -hmm. And this, you you know, your earlier comments about the election, everything else reminded me of this. We have a whole thread on fake news. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, here we are in Facebook Live, and obviously a lot of the fake news uh, discussion is around Facebook. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious about, like, in depth of like okay here's our theory of emergent democracy mm-hmm, mm-hmm. here's where we're worried that some stuff have gotten wrong but here's the reason why we're ultimately
0: optimistic mm-hmm. like here's why this path ultimately goes to a good place mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so and actually this is one of the topics i want to talk about with you offline which is um a lot of the work that um, Deb Roy and um, Ethan Zuckerman have been doing in the Media Lab, yep. which is, you know, with the right kind of machine learning and the right kind of analysis, um, what we're calling fake news is, is you know, obvious as um, spam is now obvious to our spam filters. And so I think it's kind of like, you know, a lot of, even in medicine, we find big data. Now there's all these, you know, journal articles being written where they don't even have a hypothesis. They just we've just discovered more data. You know? And what I think we're sort of in the phase right now of the internet where um, we've discovered how to generate and at some level kind of navigate the data, but we, but our analytics of the data are still, and the tools around that are still pretty limited. But I, I, I think it reminds me a little bit of, remember when we were kind of being overrun by spam and people said, oh, we're going to have to completely change the internet. Maybe we have to even Shut the thing down, but then we, you know, we figured out how to do filtering, and, and most of the problems with um, spam have have gone away. And so, so I think, hopefully, um, I'm kind of optimistic that we're in a moment right now where. Um, you know, the internet was kind of a sitting duck for the kinds of attacks that it's received. Um, when we look at the data, it's pretty clear. Um, obviously, it'll be an iterative thing, just like we had with spammers. We'll come up with one way to deal with it, and, and they'll figure out a way around it. We'll come up with another. But I think we'll iterate to a point where... Um, You know, obviously, if you want to continue to hear things that reinforce your bias, um, and 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 uh, uh, Ethan writes about this in Rewire. I mean, you can't force people to be open-minded. But I think that those of us who are who want to filter out. Noise. Um, We'll have many tools to do that, and and also partially, I think it's the. I mean, people are beating up uh, Mark and others, but I think there's a there's a kind of purity in the mission of Google and Facebook and others where they want to really be platforms and not meddle with the content. So it takes. There's a little bit of a lag, I think, while the algorithm people um, have to sort of figure out how that algorithm. It's kind of like with 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 spam. I think is a good example. I think it took a while. Before the software got good enough to deal with spam, and but I'm sure I'm glad that we didn't force everybody to have a driver's licenses to be on the internet, which would have been another solution to spam, right? So, 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 I'm generally not an algorithmist as much as some of the okay. Silicon Valley folks, but I think on this fake news thing, um, I, I think it's 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 it's, it's I'm, I'm much more optimistic. I don't know what do you
1: do you, well, do you-, you agree with that? Broadly, uh, and just for the context of the people who haven't read your book yet, you just articulated the emergence over authority (laughs) uh, and the diversity over ability themes in your answer. (laughs) Um, But the uh, which you know obviously completely agree with because I actually think all of these attributes are part of the networked age, which we are we are not only in but accelerating into. Uh, I think that, for example, one of the things that people do need to realize uh, in order to have a kind of a dynamic and uh, charitable view of Google, Facebook, et cetera, is that they precisely are these kind of platform companies. And it isn't actually an abdication responsibility as much as they really want to make sure that they are not factoring in, and of course you always do a little, but their editorial biases, Mm -hmm. and in sense, allowing kind of truth to to emerge, right, uh, Mm -hmm. through kind of grassroots. Now, that makes it hackable, but like kind of open systems are 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 hackable in ways that closed systems are not. But like the spam analogy that you you know precisely went to, uh, you can actually make a lot better out of open systems, and then you know uh, massively limit the impact of spam. We still have spam, uh, and it's still irritating, but it's not debilitating. Right, And mm-hmm. we get the benefits of an open web, of an open email system, and a bunch of other things as, as a way of doing that. Um, I think that one of the, so broadly in agreement, but the more sophisticated thing is to kind of deal with not the obvious, like, you know, um, kind of like fake news things that's you know like Hillary is secretly plotting with Putin or or any of this kind of garbage that was you know was out there trying to influence the election and I do think there were folks either through commercial reasons or through political reasons were uh, trying to influence the uh, election in the direction of Trump Um, but I think that the 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 key question is is actually in fact how do we begin to get to more uh, uh, dis- discussion and and unity and, and 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 getting back to a notion of truth mm-hmm. so what people uh lament uh, man, many journalists for example in the uh emergence over authority trend mm-hmm. is that essentially authority um, uh you know kind of doesn't um uh, we, we don't have these pillars of X is true, right? Mm-hmm. You know, the New York Times is true. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. the, the, the CBS Nightly News is true, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, I think it's ultimately, I think you probably agree that it's good to kind of go through kind of a hack central, like a central authority, which has super biases and so forth, to try to get to a different notions of truth. But I think we're in this kind of still in this kind of dark spot where we actually haven't gotten back to how do we begin to get kind of more broad unities around truth in discourse, in understanding information, Mm -hmm. you know, when we kind of go, okay, that isn't just like totally fictitious, you know, evil people commercially or politically trying to deceive us, play into our biases. You know, ruin a democracy, etc. Mm-hmm. But it's like, well, you know, like take climate change, which mm-hmm. is kind of a central one. It's like mm-hmm. there's a lot of people who go, well, climate change is 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 a false theory, and you know, and uh, matter of fact, Trump said a lot of these things during the during the election, and yet you go to the majority of scientists mm-hmm. who are deeply trained in this, and the majority of scientists who 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 do empirical work, who look at um, the uh, kind of like the temperature things, who look at the disappearance of the ice caps, who who look at kind of like what the compositional balance is of putting a lot of CO two in the atmosphere and everything else, and they all go, no, no, climate change is real. We don't know if the the world's coming to an end in fifty years or not, right? Like we don't we can't fully predict that, but we know that there is a serious impact here that may have deeply disturbing and not fully predictable consequences and we should do something about it. Mm-hmm. And yet we don't have a discourse system in this emergent system yet mm-hmm. that is as yet causing the, the speed of convergence to uh, kind of like, okay, we now all kind of, or most, mm-hmm. <laughs> Right. Mm-hmm get a okay, we we've had this discussion, we're resolving on truth. And I think that's one of the pieces of work mm-hmm. that inventors, the MIT Media Lab, mm-hmm. you know, entrepreneurs, mm-hmm. Google, Facebook, etc., you know, uh need to, you know, LinkedIn obviously, need to uh start figuring out how do we get there. And do you mm-hmm. agree with that? Do you think something different? So, do you do you have a lens on
0: it? Yeah. So I I and, and now that I'm in academia and you're 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 still a capitalist, um, I, 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 I want to throw this back at you because I feel like, um, although we use Wikipedia as the exception that proves the rule all the time, I mean, Wikipedia, when you look at the pages, especially when they're around emerging news or emerging incidents, it's pretty good at coming to a consensus of taking all this noise and trying to distill it into something that's pretty close to the truth. And if you look at peer-reviewed journals and science and things like that, there is a process by which... All these random scientists can come together and kind of try to get to uh, not a complete consensus but an overall shot on goal at what we believe is the truth in that particular field and My sense is that it's the two two levels it's it's information as Content as commercial content, whether we're talking about like the Facebook pages that were actually just selling Viagra ads to people who wanted to hear what they were saying or Fox News or even CNN. I remember when Rebecca McKinnon left CNN, she left because when they were acquired, somebody came in and said, you're no longer – Report doing your job just to tell the truth, your job is now to be content for us to sell, right, and so I think the minute content becomes a for profit business i think it 's very and, and the reason i 'm on the board of the New york Times so i 'm going to sort of maybe you know talk about it in a little biased way, but but the fact that we have that family who controls the New York Times who kind of vows to stick to its guns and not allow the commercial interests to sway the newsroom so so I mean we may have a political bias. But we definitely don't have a commercial bias, and so so I feel that that's one piece. And then the other chunk is the commercial interests that fuel politics. So so I would say you know let's I mean the the, the typical one people like to talk about is the fossil fuel business interests fueling the way people make decisions, whether it's about the Dakota pipeline or about the way we cover stuff in the news. And so 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 I feel like it's it's the it's the commercial interests that 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 feed the politics, and the commercial interests that is the media industry is probably more uh, to blame for our view on climate change than, say, just the fact that the internet is kind of disorganized, is kind of what I would say. I don't know if you agree.
1: Well, I, I, I think that it's both. So I think that the question of commercial biases are, are real, just like any other kind of like like. I think there's a set of different biases. There's political things, uh, there's cultural things, there's commercial things. And I don't mean to discount the commercial on this, mm-hmm. but as part of we get to this networked age and we think about systems design and 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 that kind of you know angle for this i think we're going to actually uh find that more of that is uh is essentially how do we uh, you know kind of architect these complex systems which will not have perfect outputs but will have generally improving and better and better outputs and the overall system is better for us mm-hmm. and so for example when you get to kind of things like around commercial bias you essentially kind of get to um, you know kind of like okay how do we both shift the existing commercial bias but then also how do we put commercial biases on the other side so like for example one of the things that i've been talking to van jones about mm-hmm. who's been doing a lot of great work on Dreamcore and is a um, media lab director's fellow uh, um, uh, media labs director's fellow um, is essentially how do we um, uh, um, you know, kind of like create the commercial system that corrects the 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 the, the, the justice, mm-hmm. and so um, the uh question of uh by the way I breakfast is about to
0: start so okay. I have to leave uh, shortly but right. it's kind of like how do you put commercial on the other side, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Yep, yep. No, so so I, I I yep. So I guess I guess what. I I guess that maybe the the, the mod- modification of what I said then would be that um, uh, you know because I because I, I think that that growth um, occurs in nature um, and growth is usually controlled and managed by certain feedback systems to create competitions and markets and things like that. But I think that what happens is when you kind of have the system get off when one particular kind of growth sort of breaks through too far and becomes too powerful, then you end up with something that looks a little bit more like a tumor and less like a market. And I think that what we've found is that the, the, the acceleration in the way that media can grow or, you know, our, our, our sort of, um, asymmetric dependence on fossil fuels and stuff like that have given certain types of, uh, entities probably more influence than they should. So, it, like you said, I think it may be a systems design thing. I don't think we should eliminate capitalism, but I do think that they're sort of, uh, you know. Capitalist DNA-based uh, cancers that are causing, specifically on um, on climate change, some of the problems. Now I would say, you know, there there are others like the the hate uh, and the fueling of some of the, uh, the 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 network-based stuff, which is totally uh, not not a commercial piece. And and so so, but I but I do think that um, and I'm going to post something about it maybe later today. But I I think that thinking about it as a system dynamics, uh, how do we fiddle with a complex, self-adaptive system and eliminate the cancerous growth? And try to create a system where the feedback systems um, work properly. I mean, I think that's actually, in fact, the right way to think about it. And that you know, m- you know, money, when put in check, is 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 good. But I think right now, um, especially the the influence of money over politics has set, kind of exceeded our ability now to um, easily dampen it.
1: Well, uh, actually, I obviously broadly agree, and it's part of the whole system design and the kind of networked age. So uh, actually, since I'm going to have to run uh, and we can do more of these, but um, uh, what I would say to to the folks, you know, watching this is actually, in fact, it's pretty important to go buy your book. You can go. You should probably (laughs) wave it in front of the camera again. Uh, Whiplash. (laughs) And, And the reason is, is how do we adapt and thrive in the networked age? Uh, and these are a set of principles for thinking about science and technology uh, and uh, kind of what's happening. And obviously, part of the mandate of the Media Lab is how to get there. Um, and so with that, I don't know if there's anything else you uh, want to do, but I should run to my breakfast. Okay.
0: Thanks, Reed, And I'll, I'll talk to you again soon. And okay. say hi to everybody cool. at, your, at your breakfast. Okay. Right. okay. Yep. See See you. Yeah. Thank you. Bye.